Well, good morning. Again, yes. You guys doing okay? Plenty of families missing. I assume there are, most of them are on vacation, so we trust they'll have a, a good time and, and come and join us again. We're glad that you're here. This morning, if you've been a regular attender, you know that we, we've been making our way through the book of Romans, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. I completed chapter 2 last week, so the expectation is I would start chapter 3 this week. I want to quickly tell you why that didn't happen and why we're now doing a message on God is good. Romans chapter 3 verses 1 through 8, some say, some Bible scholars say, is the most difficult paragraph in the book of Romans to understand and to interpret. One great preacher even said it is the most difficult in the entire Bible. And I came up against it this last week. And I failed. I failed. I was halfway through the week. I had an outline. And as I was applying myself to this outline, I came to a place where I thought, this is not what the text really means. I don't think it really means this. And so I had to abandon it. And at that point, I did not have enough time to start over. And so I just need more time. It was a very, very difficult text. I will add to that that it, um, I was really stressed out. I mean, if you don't know, you know, it's like living, uh, you know how we talk about living check to check, right? That means that if you don't get another check, you don't live the next week. Well, the pastor lives sermon to sermon, typically, most pastors. I have a, a sermon that's due every Sunday, and I can't call in sick. And if the sermon's not there, then what happens? And so it is a lot of pressure. You can pray for me in that way, and you can pray specifically that God would give me insight this week. Because I pleaded for it all week, and I just could not get there. I could just not get there. And it got so bad that I even started questioning God. Like, where are you? (laughs) Have you abandoned me? And so maybe you can relate to that in different ways, maybe. Not because you're preparing a sermon, but other stuff. Just to let you know, I'm, I'm a guy too. I'm a man who's being sanctified by God, changed by God. I'm a sinner in need of God's grace every moment. And this week clearly made that clear to me. So, what would I give you this week if I had nothing from Romans? So I went back into my archive. I have a small archive. And I was preaching through the attributes of God prior to the opening of Summit. There was a very small group here, but we had not formally opened. And we were talking about God's sovereignty and and God's immutability. We also talked about God's goodness. And I thought providentially it would be a, a good idea for me to even Go back through the fact that God is good to remind myself of that so that I might believe it, I might not question it. And so I thought maybe you would be helped by this too. You know, if God is sovereign, and he is, then it's really important that he is good, right? Because sovereign means all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. We don't quite understand that. We have a president, we have elections, we can throw him out. But under the rule of a king, they were called actually the sovereign. Because the king could say, off with your head. The king could say, you are in prison. The king could say, you are released from prison. The king could say, your home is gone. The king could do whatever he wanted to do, and no one could thwart him. No one could challenge him. He was the sovereign. Well, beloved, God 
is the ultimate sovereign. So if he's not good, you and I need to be terrified. We need to be terrified. But you know what? He is good. He is good. That's why we, that's why we relish the fact that he's sovereign. That's why we rejoice in the fact that our sovereign one is who he is because he is good. And he does good. So this morning... We're going to consider the reality, simply the reality of the goodness of God. You'll see this in your bulletin on the inside if you want to follow along as an outline. We're going to consider the reality of the goodness of God so that we might not doubt it when we experience difficult circumstances in our lives. There should be some slides that pop up here in a second, too. Those, we're going to do that by looking at the biblical proofs, which are simply just examples in the Bible that point to the reality of God's goodness or talk about it. And then we're going to look at some biblical pictures. This might be a little uh, different for you. I'll explain that when we get there. Basically, illustrations of the fact that God is good, even though it may not appear on the surface that he is at first. So we're going to look at God's prohibition of Adam, God's discipline of his children, and God's release of Satan. That's strange, huh? But we're going to look at that and we'll, we'll get to it. Beloved, it's easy to say God is good when things are going well, right? Yeah, just got the job promotion. God is so good. Just got out of the hospital. God is so good. Just hit the lotto. God is so good, right? Whatever. Whatever it is, when things are going well, it's easy. It's easy to say that. But when the circumstances in our lives are difficult or overwhelming, you know what I'm talking about? Every single one of you know what I'm talking about. Or when it seems like the world is against us. Our spouse is against us. Our kids are against us. Our boss is against us. Everything's against us. When it seems like that, we can be tempted in those times to question the goodness of God. We might even become bitter towards God. Bitter. Or even it could move from bitterness to anger. You can become angry with God when you begin to question His goodness. But listen, for our emotional, mental, and spiritual health, we need to realize that in the difficult moments that our God never stops being good and never stops doing good. And we need to trust that He is causing all things to work together for our good, for those who love God, even if we can't exactly understand how He's doing that at that particular time. Because that's what Romans 8.28 tells us. On the back of your bulletin, we have this, these bullet points, and, and they're basically bullet points that represent the gospel or the good news concerning Jesus Christ. And part of that good news, if you, if you look down on the bulletin, the one right before the last, it says this, His love for you, God's love for you, did not end with your salvation. I mean, that's, that's not it. That's not the end of God's love, just your salvation. His, his love extends to you in every way. It extends to every circumstance and difficulty of life whereby He, God, forces them to do us good. Forces them to do us good. Now, you, you either believe that or you don't. And even if you believe it, you can forget it. You can forget about it. You can be tempted to not believe it. And so we need to be reminded again and again. But before we jump into this outline that I just went over, we could ask the question, or I will ask the question, what is good? What is good? When, we, when people typically try to define that term, good, 
it becomes usually very subjective or biased or relative. So people will say, hey, that was a good meal, or that was a good movie, or he or she has a good heart, or they are a good person. And all these examples are typically based on what our standard of good is, what our standard of good is, as opposed to an objective and independent standard. And so typically, when people use the word good, what it really means, listen, what it really means is, that is worthy of my approval. That's what it really means. It doesn't necessarily mean it is objectively good. It just, it just means for you, you are saying, I approve of that. Now, listen, that would be a very bad way to define the goodness of God. A very bad way. That is that God is only good if who he is and what he does is worthy of my approval. You understand what I'm saying to you? See, that's, that's typically how we define good. That's typically what we mean, whether we recognize it or not. When we say something's good, it's based on our subjective standards. We're saying we approve of that. But then when we take that and translate it over to talking about God's goodness, that would be a big mistake because then we're saying, yeah, he's good if he measures up to my approval. What he does is good if it measures up to my approval. There was a story this week about a, a well-known religious leader from South Africa. I'm going to assume that most of you don't know who he is, but he's, he's, he's pretty well-known in those areas and well-known even... He's won a presidential award from us. and His name is Archbishop Desmond, and I don't know how to say his last name. It's T-U-T-U. It's Tutu or Tata or Tuta. I don't know. I was joking with my daughter about it this weekend. I don't know how to say his last name. But listen, he's, he has some influence on people. Okay. He was quoted as saying this week that he would not worship a God who is homophobic. He would not worship a God who is homophobic. And then he went on to denounce any faith that discriminated against gay people. Now, listen. What he's saying is, basically, if, if God doesn't accept the gay lifestyle or gays, if he doesn't accept that, then I don't want that God because that God's not good. You see what I'm saying? That's a problem, beloved. That's a problem. Now, that's shocking, but especially as a, a religious leader, very shocking. But we can do the same type of things. We, there's particular things that we say, if God's not this, if he doesn't do that, then he's not good. Because he doesn't measure up to my approval. Love, God is not good because who he is and what he does measures up to some sinful human standard of what good is. But rather, God God alone is actually the standard of what is good. He is the standard. Because He alone, alone is truly and only good. That's a shift of thinking. That's a change of our mindset. It's not what we approve that is good. It is what God approves that is good. Do you understand what I'm saying? You with me so far? Let me give you a definition of the goodness of God that maybe you should take note of. It is this. 
The goodness of God is first his perfection, his excellence in the moral realm. In the moral realm, we could say that. God is the final standard of good. He's the final standard. And all that God is and does is worthy of approval. Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, it is worthy of approval. And God is, get this, what God approves. God is what God approves. That's a a healthy definition of the goodness of God. And God cannot act contrary to His nature, beloved. We say all the time, boys will be boys, right? What does that mean? They're terrifying. That's what it means. They're going to rip stuff up and destroy things. But listen, you could say this, God will be God. God will be God and God is good. So ultimately, everything He does is is good. This is why the people of God have often said that God is good all the time. It's a phrase throughout the history. They, the pastor would say, God is good, and the, the congregation would come back all the time. There is no time. Even in my most difficult circumstances, there is no time that God is not good, that He's not doing good, that He's not even bringing about my good. Now let me add that the goodness of God is broad and it is closely related to many of His other characteristics, those attributes of His nature, such as His mercy, His grace, His faithfulness, His love, His truth, His holiness, His compassion, His patience. In fact, you could understand all of these attributes to be various aspects of God's goodness, various ways in which God's goodness is put on display for us to see. Now, we could spend weeks exploring any one of those characteristics, but for today, we're just going to consider the general idea that God alone is truly good, and consequently, He always does good. He always does good. So let's get started. Let's take a look at it this morning. How about some biblical proofs? And we could look at a ton of biblical proofs. I'm just going to give you a few. Very distinct, very sharp, very clear. Psalm 119, 68. Psalm, and you don't have to turn your Bibles because we're going to kind of just breeze through these. Uh, they'll come up, but if you want to, you can try to keep up. Psalm 119, 68. The psalmist says, speaking of God, what it, I mean, how much clearer does it get? You are good and do good. This is everything that I've just been talking about. You, God, define what is good by what you do. Okay? You define what is good by what you do, and what you do reflects who you are. You see? God meets perfectly the standard of goodness because He is the standard by which goodness is measured and determined. God is good, and He does good. I would memorize this passage. I would, because it's so simple. And often you need to tell yourself this when you begin to doubt it, when you begin to question it. I don't know about you, God. Remember what the Word of God says. You are good and you do good. Mark 10.18, these are the words of Christ Himself. No one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. There is no one essentially, entirely, or absolutely good, but one 
and according to the Scriptures, that is God. Psalm 34, 8 through 10. The Scripture there says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. We've read from the psalm, Chris, I believe, read from the Psalms this morning. This is a psalm written by King David, a man who loved the Lord. If you know anything about him, was loved by the Lord, and he put his trust in the Lord. And you know what? He desired for others to experience what he had experienced in order that they may come to know what he had really come to know. What was that? That the Lord is good. That the Lord is good. One writer says this, Christian experience in all ages, it's going to pop up. Christian experience in all ages continues and confirms this testimony. What testimony? That, that the Lord is good. Our lack of experience constitutes no reason for questioning the reality of this experience or doubting the truth to which it bears witness. Truth is truth. Believed or not, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you've actually experienced the goodness of God or if you even deny the goodness of God. It doesn't change the reality that God is good all the time and does good. He is consistent with His nature. The world would be full of God's goodness, the writer goes on to say, though all were idolaters and atheists. If everyone even rejected God, said there was no God, it wouldn't matter. God would still be good. But personal experience, huh, when you experience the goodness of God, it gives birth to invincible certainty. And then you as well will say, taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. In the book of James, James writes to Christians whose faith was being tested by various trials. You ever experienced trials in your life? No, few of you, none? That's excellent. I'd like to talk to you afterwards. I want to see what you're doing. I want to join you in your journey. Ha. <sighs> They were being tested, beloved. They were being tested because of their faith. This just wasn't trials of life, but trials because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And some apparently thought that God was tempting them to sin in these, during these occasions. James says this to them who thought that maybe, maybe God was bringing these things upon them that they might sin against God. He says in James chapter 1, verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't, be, don't get this wrong. Don't think for a second that God would do such a thing. Every good gift and every perfect gift, it is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. That's a reference to God as Creator. Coming down from Him with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He never changes. He is immutable. You don't have to worry about Him. He is good. He is always good. And every perfect gift, every good gift comes straight from Him. One commentator says this concerning this passage in the section of James. 
The warning in this passage is against being deceived into thinking that God is the author of temptation. Instead of sending temptation, God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. This concept of goodness rules out the possibility that God would send an influence as destructive as temptation. God's gifts are marked by kindness and helpfulness, not destructiveness. They are, quote, perfect, which in this context includes, excludes any possibility of moral evil, such as tempting his people to commit sin. The point of James's statement is that nothing but good comes from God. It's just, a, it's just another reminder, just another example. Guys, you got it wrong. You forgot the God you are serving to make such a ridiculous accusation. Only good gifts come from our God. One writer commenting on the book of James says this. I found this helpful. It is impossible to walk with God if we question His goodness. But believers can do this very thing. Huh. I mean, think with me for a second so that you're hearing this and you're not thinking, okay, whatever. But think about it. Have you ever in your life as a Christian questioned the goodness of God? You don't have to tell me that, but just think about it. I, if you haven't, you haven't lived long enough. I'm telling you. Just, it'll happen. We can attempt to walk with God. We can attempt to walk with God while we question His goodness. It was so with James's readers. They were Christians, beloved. They were suffering severe persecution because of their faith in Christ. This persecution was causing many of them to be disappointed in and angry with God. A good God would not allow such things to happen to His people. Doubt of God's goodness is as old as the human race. Masquerading as a serpent, Satan came to the Garden of Eden and he approached Eve. Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Genesis 3.1 he was casting doubt on the goodness of God. Is it really true that God does not allow you to eat of all the trees of the garden? The implication, of course, was that if God were truly good, He would have allowed Adam and Eve to eat of all the trees with so much as not a single exception. See? Immediately, this is, this is Satan's target. He wants us to question the goodness of God. To think maybe for a second, God is holding out on me. Or God is doing something to me that is not good. And therefore, maybe He's not worthy of my worship. Maybe He's not worthy of my life. Rather than doubt God's goodness, James says to his readers in James chapter 1, many of you are familiar with this passage in verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy! For you know that the testing of your faith it produces something good. Steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The writer James is saying God allows trials into the lives of His people because He desires to see His people mature 
and grow in their faith as they trust God through those difficult circumstances. See? So that's how I can count it all joy. When I continue to believe that God is good, He does good, He's accomplishing good for me, so even though these circumstances don't seem very good, I can trust God through them and in them. And I can give Him thanks. We could spend a great deal of time considering all the biblical passages, as I had said, that that clearly state that God is good or does good, but I just want to now consider a few examples in the Bible. Okay, I just pulled these out where the circumstances in and of themselves don't seem good, okay? But God still proves, I believe if we consider it a little deeper, God still proves to be good. And that's kind of the situation we find ourselves in all the time, where the circumstances are not good, And then we make the mistake of beginning to question, since we know God is sovereign, we know that ultimately nothing comes into our life without His direction or permissive will, we begin to go, what's up, God? What are you doing? I don't like this, and I don't really like you. Maybe we don't verbalize that out loud, but sometimes our hearts can feel such things. And that's a that's a bad direction to go, beloved. It's not the right direction. We want to repent of that kind of thinking and remind ourselves of what is true. Because then we'll be able to relate and respond to these circumstances in a way that glorifies God and is helpful to us. So, for instance, here's one. God's prohibition of Adam. God's prohibition of Adam. These are simple. They're just something for you to think about. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 through 24, I'll read the passage and then we'll talk about it. Then the Lord God said, Behold, now listen, this, now we're at the point where Adam and Eve, they've been placed in the garden. God gave them specific instructions, right? You can eat of every tree of the garden. I'm giving you all. I ever look at them. They're everywhere. Just don't eat of one. Just don't eat of one. Don't violate this one thing I've asked you not to do. Well, if you're familiar at all with the story, Adam violated it. He violated it. They ate of the tree. So now they have the consequences. And in verse 22 it says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. There's, within this garden, there was a tree that was called the tree of life. That's how God referred to it. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden. He kicked him out. He prohibited him from going there. And Eve. He sent him out to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim. These are angels. And the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way Uh, to the tree of life. So Adam had sinned against God, listen, by eating the fruit of of this forbidden tree. Consequently, thereafter, the world and humanity, okay, as a result of this, was ruined. The world and humanity was ruined and all were under a curse. But before this sad event had occurred, Adam and Eve and his 
or his wife, Eve, had enjoyed, beloved, paradise on earth. They were living in the very Garden of Eden, and in that garden they had open access to the tree of life, a real tree that apparently had special properties that would sustain their lives forever. They would be immortal. Are you with me so far? But now God had prohibited Adam from having access to this very tree. Pretty bad, huh? Pretty lousy. And as a result, they would certainly die. They would die. So what's that have to do with any of this? Well, listen. I wonder what Adam and Eve were thinking at that point. Really? Now you've just kicked us out of the garden? We'll die without access to that tree. Over one mistake, God, we're out? Well, one writer says, God told man that he would surely die if he ate of the forbidden tree. We see that in chapter 1, verse 17. Now listen, I think, this, I think the writer's onto something. But God's concern may also have been that man not live forever in his pitifully cursed condition. Taken in the broader context of Scripture, driving the man and his wife out of the garden was an act of merciful grace to prevent them from being sustained by the tree of life. Now, I don't know if the writer is correct, but it makes sense to me. If I know that God is good and all that He does is good, then somehow, in some way, every event, all the circumstances of life are being worked together to accomplish good. And even in this very tragic situation where immortality was lost in a moment, and we say, and what are we spending all of our lives trying to do? Get back to immortality, right? We're trying to figure out how to get back there. Why in the world would you want to be immortal in this world? I don't want to. I don't want to live forever. I don't even want to make it past 100. 70, 80, yeah, because I want to see my grandkids grow up, things like that. But beloved, I am good with going. I don't want to stay. This world is cursed. It's cursed. We're cursed. Why would I want to live in this world? So the fact that God provides an exit through death, is actually a gracious and merciful thing. You see that? Interesting. God is good and He does good. How about God's discipline of His children? You're familiar, I'm sure, with this. People talk about it a lot. When a, when a parent disciplines their children, let me ask you something. Well, I don't even, I, and a lot of parents don't discipline their children now. I don't, uh, that's a whole other discussion that we could have. I'm not making any comments. You can tell by the expression on my face what I think about that. But when a parent disciplines his child, does the child uh, typically respond to that discipline by saying, Dad, Mom, you are good and you do good? Is that, is that parents? What, if they ever did that, would you not fall over? Would you not? You'd pass out. You'd be like, I don't know who you are. No, that, 
And they, not only would they not say it unless they're trying to get out of it or something, but they certainly probably wouldn't think that or feel that. And yet, the, the parent that biblically disciplines their, their children, they are doing a good thing. They are being good, according to the Word of God. They're just practicing what our Father does. Look at the, we'll look at the text together. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. The writer of Hebrews says here, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves. See that? If a parent doesn't discipline their children, it's actually uh, it's not because they love them. It's because they don't love them. If they, they, don't, they don't discipline their children. They don't really love them. They love themselves. They don't want to deal with it. They don't like it. It's rough. It's hard. It's, they don't want to deal with that. But if they really love that child, they would biblically discipline. I'm not talking about beating. I'm not talking about abuse. But they would biblically discipline that child. Because that's what the Lord does. The Lord disciplines the ones He loves and He chastises every son whom He receives, every daughter, every child of God. He takes them into His care and He disciplines them. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, if you don't experience any of this discipline, godly discipline coming from God in your life, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You're not His. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits, the Father of our very souls, and live For they discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them, right? Dads, moms, they do the best they can. They don't always do it right. But they do the best they can. But He, God, He disciplines us only for our good. That we may share His holiness. That we may be conformed to His nature and character. For the moment, at the time, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Right? Every child knows this. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Beloved, what typically happens to children who have never been disciplined? Do you know? Never been disciplined in their life. Never never had the care of a loving mom or a loving dad who corrected them when they needed correction, who trained them in righteousness, who said, this is wrong. And when you do this wrong, there is a price to pay for doing the wrong. Because I want you to never do that wrong again. What happens to a child who never receives that kind of discipline? It's usually tragic. It's usually tragic. There's a long list of them in prison or in other kinds of difficult situations and circumstances because they were never trained. They were never disciplined. They were never taken care of. So let me ask you this. Is God good then to discipline us? But does it feel good at the time of the discipline? 
No. No, it typically doesn't. And we can make a mistake and go, I don't like this God, and I'm not so certain that you really are the good God I've put my faith and trust in. And we have to come back to the Word of God and say, oh no, He's good, and He does good. And the reality is right here, He's doing good right now as you are being disciplined because He wants to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. He wants your life to bear the fruit of righteousness. And in order for that to happen, He's going to have to discipline us. So there's another example. How about this one? This one's maybe a little... uh, Maybe you've never thought of this, but it's God's release of Satan. God's release of Satan. So we're going to go into Revelation to see this. And let me give you some quick eschatology or understanding of the last time. So we have... We have the rapture of the church. This is how we understand it. We have the tribulation, the seven-year period. At the end of this tribulation, this great tribulation, Christ returns. He returns to the earth, and He returns to the earth to, to judge and to set up His kingdom, His kingdom on earth. Now, throughout, and by the way, this kingdom, He will rule and reign in this kingdom, and the Bible tells us it will be for 1,000 years on earth. So we refer to it as the millennial kingdom. At the end of the tribulation period, there are some believers who survived. They will come into the kingdom physically, just in their physical bodies. They will come into that kingdom. And then they will live with Christ along with the church and many others during this period of time. Now listen. Chapter 20 of Revelation, verse 7. So the kingdom has started. Christ is ruling and reigning. And then this is written. And when the thousand years are ended... By the way, I forgot to tell you something. At the end of this period, at the end of the tribulation, the beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. They are friends of Satan. I'll just leave it at that. Doing his work. Satan himself, though, is not yet cast into the lake of fire. He's put into prison. He's imprisoned. Okay? So during this thousand years, Satan is imprisoned. He's not roaming around. He's not seeking whom he may devour. He's not wreaking havoc on the earth. He is imprisoned for this thousand years as Christ rules and reigns. Okay, ready? Verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. That's the battle didn't last very long. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. Now he's thrown in there. And sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were put there a thousand years prior. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, let me, let me now, because I kind of, this is weird. I got, we're going to try to get at this, show you how this, I believe, demonstrates the goodness of God. After Satan is released from his prison, right, he is, he is permitted now to lead one last revolt against God. He will gather together a group of people, and this is, this is what I had to tell you, that remember I told you, People came out of the tribulation, some made it, believers, 
and they came into the kingdom. Physically coming into the kingdom allowed them to continue to give birth, to have children, to procreate. So a thousand years, in a thousand years, there were a lot of babies and a lot of people grew up, but they were not necessarily believers. So in this kingdom, you have believers and you have truly unbelievers. Okay? You with me so far? That's the group of people he gathers together. He's not, he's not saying, hey, believers, let's go fight against Christ. That's not who he's gathering. So who is he gathering? He's gathering these people that had been born during the millennial kingdom to those that were in physical bodies who came out of the tribulation, and yet they were not believers in the sense that they were still in rebellion against the Lord. So now the question is, why in the world would a good God orchestrate these events? Huh? Don't, I mean, when you read that, you go, come on, what are you doing, man? Why doesn't he just leave Satan in prison or cast him into the lake of fire where he already placed the beast and the false prophet? Why not? I don't get it, God. Why do that? That does not seem good. Well, listen now. Some have suggested, and I am persuaded as well, that Satan is loosed. Satan is kept and bound and loosed to show the true nature of man. And that apart from the saving and transforming grace of God, every person is an absolute rebel at heart. Every person. See, listen, during this time of the millennium, the earth will have been restored to conditions, if we read all the text, it will be restored to conditions similar to before the fall of Adam. Wild animals will be tamed. There will be no war. No war, beloved, during this time, during this thousand years. Trees will bear fruit abundantly. The earth will give itself to producing food. Sin will immediately and justly... Hey, that's a new one. Actual justice, real justice, everywhere throughout the whole land. We don't know that now. But during the millennial kingdom, we will know it. Why? Because Jesus Christ will be ruling and reigning over the world from the capital, from Jerusalem. For the first time ever, the world will have an absolutely righteous government. Okay? For the first time ever, and there will, because it's never been so, perfectly righteous. And, guess what? You know that thing we keep asking for? Peace? Peace? There will actually be peace on earth. There will be peace on earth. This is the utopia. This is the utopia that everyone talks about, but they don't want to get there this way. They think they can get there some other way. They're not. Christ is the only one that can establish this kind of utopia. But guess what? Listen. Even under those perfect conditions, even when Satan is bound, so he has no influence, even when the world is perfect, there's no war. Righteousness is ruling and reigning. Even in those conditions, there will be a multitude. The text says their number is like the sand of the sea. You picture that. How many pieces of sand can you hold just in your hand? 
I don't, need, I don't know, guys. I don't know. But it's a lot. It's a lot. We're talking about their multitude. Their number will be like not the sand in your hand, but like the sand of the sea. That's a lot of people. He will gather them together. Why? Because secretly they hate Christ. You see that? Christ is ruling and reigning. He is the perfectly just king. He has established a world without war. Satan has been bound, and yet people hate him because in their heart they are sinful rebels. And when they are given the opportunity to rebel, being deceived into thinking that they can actually battle Christ and win, that's the deception. Yeah, let's, let's go get him. There's a, look how many of us there are. They jump at the opportunity. These events, beloved, I believe will serve as one final and very good, very good reminder that God is truly gracious and merciful, merciful to have saved anyone ever. He is merciful. Not a single person deserves it. If left to their own devices, they are wicked rebels. And people always want to say, they want to blame it on Satan. Well, Satan made me do it. And the reason the world's so messed up is because of Satan. Or the, it's messed up because of the government. Or it's messed up because of my family. Or blah, blah, blah. That's why I'm messed up. No, you're just messed up. You're messed up. There's no Satan here. There's a perfect world you're living in. And yet still, you reject Christ who's established it. Do you see? So we will be reminded once and for all at the end before the eternal kingdom takes over that God is truly gracious and merciful to have saved us. And we will spend an eternity acknowledging that Again and again and again, and giving him praise. You see? Let me close with a few comments. Genesis 50, verse 20. Maybe some of you know the story. It's the story of Joseph. Joseph. So we have uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has a son named Joseph. Joseph had brothers. I'm just going to give you Reader's Digest version just to take you there, okay? That means a shortened version. Joseph, in case you guys don't read Reader's Digest, Joseph is, his brothers, his dad loves him. He, he loves him. He's beloved to him. And his brothers hate him for that. Okay? So they have a great idea. Let's kill him. So they're going to kill, they're going to kill Joseph. But through a series of events, Joseph is not killed, but rather they choose to sell him off to some guys passing by basically into slavery. So now he's, he's almost killed. Uh, they tell his dad that he was eaten by some animals, so his dad thinks he's dead. He's sold off into slavery. The kid did nothing wrong, okay? Dad loves him. That's all, all he did wrong is he was loved by his dad. If, if you can even say that was something, there's nothing wrong. He's sold off into slavery. Eventually he ends up in a, he's sold again, and, and he ends up in this man's home, and 
and the man, and so he has to be a servant there. And the man's wife uh, likes him. By that I mean she really likes him. You understand? She wants to have physical relations with him, and so she goes to him to have physical relations with him, and and he he does not do it. He knows it is wrong. He will not sin against God. He knows it's wrong, so he he has to literally run away from her. Well, she's uh, obviously. I guess upset, maybe offended that that he just ran away from her. So he, she decides to accuse him of rape, falsely. Now he's in prison. He's in prison. Anyway, to just jump ahead, he eventually gets out of prison. He ends up uh, taking a position in Egypt through a series of events that God is orchestrating this whole thing where he now is like the man in charge in Egypt. His family, not in Egypt, are experiencing a drought Egypt has all the food. His family ends up having to, to come to Egypt to try to get some food. And, and I can't give you the whole story. You should read it. The end of Genesis. It's fantastic. But at the end, Joseph now stands before his brothers. They finally, they know now who he is. They didn't recognize him at first because it's 20 years later. But now they, so he looks different. And they realize, oh my goodness, you're, you're the guy we sold off into slavery. And now you are in charge. And you, our life is in your hands. And, and Joseph makes this statement, which is unbelievable. He's talking to his brothers, and he says, in Gen- Genesis 50, verse 20, you meant evil against me. You did. That was terrible what you did. But God meant it for good. Because through all those circumstances, I was able to be put into the position I am in, and I'm going to be able to save my people, my family, I'm going to be able to feed you. I'm going to be able to take care of you. And this family is the nation of Israel. God orchestrated the whole thing. Huh? Now, as he's going through that, as he's sitting there, you know, they threw him in a pit. They were going to kill him. And now they throw him in a pit. He's just waiting. Are my brothers going to actually execute me? Now I'm sold off into slavery. Wow. I used to be in my father's house. I had many privileges. Now I have none. Wow, now I'm in this other house. Now this woman accuses me of right now I'm in prison. What are you doing, God? I don't know. Maybe he thought that. I don't know. Maybe he, was, maybe he knew the whole time, God, you are good and you always do good. I have no idea what you're doing. But Joseph at the end was able to see how all these events orchestrated to accomplish the goodness of God. He was able to see it. Beloved, sometimes you and I don't get to see the end. We don't. We don't get to see exactly all that God's doing. Not, at least not in this life. I trust in the next. I'll be able to watch all the movies, all the whole movies God has for me so I can see how all this craziness that I thought, what is going on, God, that I can see how He was working all these things together for good. But sometimes now in this life, I don't get to see it. So I have to live by faith. I have to keep believing that God is good. Sometimes I do get to see it. But not always, beloved. We have to keep believing. Keep trusting in what the Scriptures say. God is good. That will never change. He is the standard of what good is. And because He is good, He is completely consistent with His character. All that He does is good. And even in most difficult times in my life, I can trust that God, You, because I love You, You have promised to to work, to force these events to accomplish good on my behalf. Boy, it doesn't look like that right now, God. But I'm, I'm not going to question your goodness. I'm going to trust in it. 
I'm going to hold on to you tighter if I have to. And maybe that's why this is happening. You just want me to hold on tighter. Let's pray. Father God, we, we just try, I trust, Father, that you will use your, your word and to work in your way. Father, we, we are weak people and, and we often get sidetracked and, and we begin to think things that are not right and to accuse you of things that are not true. And, and Father, even to question your love, your mercy, your compassion, your very goodness to us. I, and so, Father, I ask for forgiveness. And Father, on behalf of those here even, I ask, Father, for your forgiveness. We want to humbly come before you and just recognize that you are good. And you are not kind of good, somewhat good, mixed in with a little bit of bad. You are completely holy, perfectly good. You are indeed the very standard of what good is. And because of that, because you never go against yourself, all that you do is good. And Father, even when we, we can't clearly see just, just what is going on, how you're making this all work, help us, Lord, to have faith that we may not begin to turn against you. That would be tragic for us. But even in all these things that we might embrace you even further. Father, increase our faith that we might believe what is true of you and, and we might take comfort in knowing that, that you are doing good things in our lives regardless of the circumstances we might find ourselves in. In Jesus' name, amen.